0: 2 Corinthians chapter 4, before we get into Nehemiah. You know, it was funny this morning, I had somebody come up to me after church, I don't always disclose everything everybody says to me, but this was pretty good, they got me. You know how I talked about how God can put his finger on those points where it'll hurt, something that's valuable? They said, you of all people should know that. I'm like, what do you mean? They said, well, in one whole week, you had the Braves knocked out. You had the bulldogs knocked out by South Carolina. He got your point where you hurt, and I was like, touche, you really got me. I mean, that's very observant of you. (laughs) Very, very observant of you. Anyway, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Thank you for encouraging your pastor. Uh, You know, I was reading a story uh, this week in 1845. John Franklin, he left England to discover a northwest passage a seaway for ships through Canadian Arctic that would connect to the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. He took with him on his expedition 138 men. And the thing about it is uh, these were men that he chose from the Royal Navy to go on this specific ex- expedition, but no one knew what laid in front of them. I don't, according to the reports, they weren't even aware of all the conditions that they were gonna face because they were gonna be in and around the North Pole And they set sail, they set off in two state-of-the-art ships uh, of their day. Each ship had an auxiliary steam engine. It had a huge storeroom where they could store up to 12 days worth of coal in case they needed it in order to navigate through the waters. They were confident when they set off, but according to the the story, they were very ill-prepared for what came in front of them. They didn't plan thoroughly enough for the ice waters that they were going to face off the coast of Alaska. According to the reports, when they left, the only clothing that they took were their uniforms and their overcoats. That was a big mistake. Two months after their departure, the, the last European to see them was a British whaler that saw them off the coast of Canada. When they set sail, they ended up just disappearing and for over 12 years, they sent out people to try to trace down where these people ended up at. They couldn't find it. And then finally, they, they came across some Eskimos that reported seeing the men being pushed in wooden boats across the ice. The Eskimos said that they saw some of these men. They finally found three wooden masts off of the coast uh, where these three wooden masts, they came out of the ice. And they said, amidst all of the findings, this was the most interesting thing that they came across. The most devastating discovery was that the ship had not stocked the coal supply that they had on the, bo- on the boats. In fact, they turned the storage area into a lounge that had 1,200 books inside of it, an organ, a cupboard space for all of their fine china and silver. And the historian that wrote about this, this is what he said. The expedition was prepared for the conditions inside the Royal Navy's officer club, but they were not prepared for the Arctic Ocean. They ended up finding 30 bodies, and here's the thing. They were confident in their hopes, and they were very high in their spirits, but they were not prepared for the challenges of their expedition. You know, when I thought about that, these guys, they set up, I'm sure that they had high hopes, but they weren't prepared for the conditions that they were going to face. When we come into the book of Nehemiah, specifically in chapter 4, you find that the people recognize that they're going to face opposition. Folks, anybody that attempts to do anything for the Lord, go ahead and put it down. You will always... Let me say it again. You will always face opposition. You should be prepared for it. Uh, the Bible says it clearly in John chapter 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. That's the words of Jesus. The fact is, is that when God's people unite together to try to accomplish anything for the Lord's work, you better plan on it. There's going to be opposition. Look at what goes on in, in just in our world on an everyday basis. If you name the name of Christ, go ahead and mark it down. They're going to oppose you. They're going to resist you. Uh, they're going to write you up as a religious fanatic. And the fact of the matter is, folks, if we're a believer here and you're trying to accomplish anything for the Lord, you're going to face opposition. You've got an enemy that doesn't want you to accomplish the task of the Lord's work. And, folks, that's never seen more clearly than in Nehemiah chapter 4 as they begin to work together, they're gonna to have an outside enemy that's working against them. Folks, that's how it works. Uh, according to J. Oswald Sanders, he wrote a, a fantastic book. If you ever wanna read a good book on you know, just Christian leadership, he wrote the book Spiritual Leadership. And in chapter 13, it's very interesting what he talks about. He's talking about the cost of leadership. You know that there's a cost that comes with leading people? When you choose to lead a group of people in anything, and notice he he says, he talks about seven different things that a leader faces. You know what the number one thing on the list was? Criticism. Criticism. Listen to what he said. These are some great words though. I wanted to read it to you. He says this. No leader is exempt from criticism and his humility is nowhere seen more clearly than in the manner in which he accepts and reacts to it. Not only is criticism a possibility, the leader is the target of critical darts that are constantly thrown in his direction. Hey, if you choose to be in a place of leadership, if you're a Sunday school teacher, if you lead a church, if you're involved in a ministry, understand that does not eliminate you from criticism. As a matter of fact, it paints a target on your back right? You're going to have people that have critical spirits. And Nehemiah chapter four, here's kind of the context of what's going on. Nehemiah, uh, for a hundred years, basically, Jerusalem lived without their walls being rebuilt. And, and anywhere where people have lived in that kind of condition, hundred years, people are used to what? They're used to the conditions. This is the way it's always been. We've been without our walls for a hundred years. Why do we need to rebuild it? Why do we need to even venture into this new territory of building this thing back up again? They had grown comfortable with it. They were used to the reproach of the city, the fact that people looked at Jerusalem and they laughed at it. If you you don't remember that, go back to Nehemiah chapter 2. You'll see that Sanballat and Tobias, they were already criticizing them and laughing at them. They were used to it. They had already been defeated. Their walls had been torn down. The city had been devastated. They had been used to those, you know, to to the city being that way for years. And so what happens is is that Nehemiah comes into the city and he knows what to expect. You think Nehemiah, when he comes into Jerusalem, he didn't know that there was going to be some opposition? You think he knew that? (laughs) Of course. He's gonna come in and he's facing opposition from the outside. Eventually he'll have maybe even some opposition from the inside. Hey folks, that's just a fact of leadership. You're gonna have people that oppose you. But the question is, is this, is how do you handle it? That's an important question. What we find is that when Nehemiah comes in, you have to understand kind of the context behind what's going on. In the Old Testament, Jerusalem was the center of God's earthly purpose. Everything that God was wanting to do in that time centered in a location, Jerusalem specifically. And why I bring that up is that uh, when people chose to oppose what God was doing in Jerusalem, who were they opposing? They were opposing God. That was the center of what he was working on. It was the center of what God's work was trying to accomplish, was rebuilding the walls and rebuilding the city. So as Nehemiah comes in, and he has plans and endeavors to rebuild the walls. Hey, when God's plans are to rebuild that wall, do you think there's gonna be an enemy that opposes it? Hey, as he was gonna build that back up, Satan was equally going to oppose the work that God was trying to accomplish in the city. And so here's the point, is that anytime heaven advances, hell opposes. That's a principle. Hey folks, you know what God doesn't, he doesn't want a church to unite and to be able to reach people with the gospel in our city. He would far rather uh, divide us, get us discouraged, get us off our tasks so that what? So that the work of God doesn't advance. You know what? I, 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 it just blows my mind how sometimes us as Christians, we're so ignorant of what Satan wants to do to us. Do you agree with what I'm saying? He would love, love, love to get his foot in the door at Metro Baptist. He would far rather you criticize people than pray for them. He would far rather you, you know, just get discouraged about what's happening than be encouraged about what God's doing, even the things that we don't see. Absolutely. And so what happens is, is, as Nehemiah comes in, he begins to assign tasks to rebuild the walls. And opposition immediately broke out when they began to rebuild. Notice that, and, and here's a important principle for us to talk about too. Before they began building, there was no criticism. Sanballat and Tobias had no problem with Jerusalem when they weren't doing anything. You know what I've found, <laughs> and I've, I know that this seems elementary, but I would, I, I think nobody would be here that would say, Ryan, you're completely wrong. You're an idiot. All right, maybe you would, but that would be another subject. Here's the thing. It's basically this. When you're not doing anything, there's nothing to fight. There's nothing to oppose. And when they began to unite together and begin to rebuild the walls, and the people began to do their task, and they began to rebuild and they set their hearts on the work that God called them to, that's immediately, at that point, Satan begins to use the enemy to oppose, to criticize, to get them discouraged, to get them away from the task. But listen, criticism and all of that's unavoidable. Here's the question. When you begin to get criticized, what do you do with it? You know the thing after studying it this week, this is what I found. What I love about Nehemiah is that he didn't allow for criticism to get him off target about what he was trying to do. You know, I don't know uh, how many of you recognize this, but you remember when Paul said that if he tried to please men, then he couldn't be the servant of God? You know, we can't be about people pleasing. That is a really difficult thing in leadership because you can allow criticism to, to crowd your thoughts and you can allow the things that people to say to influence, not that you shouldn't listen to people, but the fact is, is that if you listen to people too much, you can't be God's servant because you really ought to be listening to him. Amen. And so what we find is that Nehemiah, he allows for the, the target that God gave him. Nehemiah knew his role. He knew his purpose. And I love that because, hey, folks, if you're going to accomplish anything for the Lord, you better know what it is he wants you to accomplish, And he set his eyes and his focus on that thing, and he didn't allow criticism to come in and get him off target or to veer off on a detour. Folks, if we ever get that way as a church, go ahead and shut the doors down because we have to keep our eyes on the mission, on the target, on the thing that God wants us to get done. And so I want you to notice that criticism comes up, but how do you handle it? So let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and I know you're probably wondering, why would we start here? Well, there's an important principle, I think, that's at play before we get into Nehemiah chapter 4. Paul was probably one of the greatest leaders. I mean, if you don't know that, read the book of Acts, see what he accomplished, the places he went. But 2 Corinthians is one of the most autobiographical books in the whole New Testament. Paul talks more about himself in that book than any other book. And one of the things that he talks about is he talks about ministry and what it's really like. So I think it'd be good for us to start off with this. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. He says this, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels. What's the treasure? If you read the context, it's the gospel. The gospel is the treasure. And notice that he says that the excellency of the power may be of who? May be of God and not of us. He's describing that the ministers, the people that God uses, they're nothing more than what? Clay pots. Man, what a great representation of what the people of God are supposed to be, the, the ministers of God. You're nothing more than just dirt vessels, these clay pots that have imperfections. You know, in their time, uh, clay jars were used as garges, garbage disposal. I mean, for waste baskets, basically. And so when Paul talks about his ministry, he says, hey, you know what I am? I'm just nothing more than a a garbage basket that has what? Look at what he says, but you have a treasure, a treasure in this earthen vessel. The treasure is what? It's the gospel, the message that impacted you. He says, so that why does God use earthen vessels? Why does he use clay pots? So that when God accomplishes something, Notice that the excellency of the power may be of who? It may be of God, that God looks at it and says, hey, it can't be explained by the vessel that he used. But in the end, he'll look at it and he'll say, man, that was just a clay pot that God, the excellency of the power worked in and through him. The gospel was put inside that clay jar. There was just nothing more than dirt. And the only thing that can be explained is that God did it through him. It wasn't them. I love that. What a great illustration. Now, notice <clears throat> after he says that, he's going to begin to tell us what a clay, how a clay pot gets treated. Okay? So, look at what he says the minister of God that, that's uh, bringing the gospel, that's serving the Lord. This is what it looks like to be a clay pot, verses eight through 10. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We're perplexed, but not in despair persecuted but not forsaken, cast down but not destroyed. And look at verse 10, always bearing about in the body of the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. Notice that he talks about the life of people that serve the Lord. Is it gonna be glorious and glamorous? Is it? Uh, As a matter of fact, you know, uh, he, he's talking about he's always bearing a by, about in his body the dying of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does he mean by that, always? He means there's always problems, there's always things going on. But he says that we might be knocked down, but we're, we're not out. That's basically what he means. There's opposition is inevitable. The fact of the matter is, is that God puts his truth into servants, and the fact is, is that they'll go through times of suffering and difficulty, and that in the end, people look at how God had manifested his truth through his servants and people will look at it and they say, hey, this is God doing the work through them in spite of all of the difficulty. Pretty incredible thought. You know what I've found? And, and you're like, Ryan, you haven't found anything. You're too young. But here, here's what I, I've really, I've really have, I've, I've thought about this. I look at the times of, of maybe ministry that's been the most difficult moments And I found that the reason why maybe he identified himself as a clay pot is that in the storms of life when you're serving the Lord, is that rain softens those clay pots so that they're moldable, they're usable, they're humbled, and they realize that they desperately need help. I've found that it's not, you see, if, if a vessel, if a clay vessel is only exposed to the sun, it hardens. And eventually, it becomes easily to break. God needs to mold us and keep us humble. And folks, that's exactly what happens in Nehemiah chapter 4. For whatever reason, God saw it necessary that as the people of God would return back to Jerusalem, that they would face opposition. And folks, the opposition would do what? It wouldn't make them prideful. It would humble them. And that through humbling them, they wouldn't get prideful and think that they were accomplishing something. That in the end that people would look at how they rebuilt the walls and they would say, hey, these people were a weak people, they were just clay pots, but they had the excellency of the power of God working in and through them to accomplish God's task. Folks, that's what we should desire, right? Hey, uh, the, the, this is not about me. It's not about how great I am, but it's about that power of God that works in and through weak people, Right? All right, now let's look at this as we go to Nehemiah chapter four and we'll get into this and see how God works this through. So Nehemiah comes into Jerusalem with, a, with a, this plan to rebuild the city. We noticed that last week we talked about Nehemiah chapter three that Nehemiah began to plan and he began to assign the task of rebuilding the walls. The thing that's interesting and, and Pastor Phil brought this up to me this past week, I thought it was a good point. Uh, he said the fact is is that they assigned the task to the people whose house was closest to the wall. You think if you're rebuilding a wall and your house is next to it, you're going to care about it more? Yeah, yeah you are. You're going to do like an extra good job. Man, my wife is going to kill me if they get through this wall. All right, And so that uh, encouraged them to work maybe a little bit harder. But the fact is he assigned these roles. But it's important to notice that this opposition happened during the rebuilding. And and, and as a matter of fact, the opposition actually began in chapter 2. So what I want you to do, Nehemiah, look back at chapter 2. I want to show you how it had already started. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 10. It says, When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, heard of it, it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. It grieved them. They were upset when somebody decided to come back and rebuild. Look down at verse 19. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the servant, the Ammonite, and Geshem, the Arabian, they heard of it. Notice what they did. They laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, what is this thing that you do? Will you rebel against the king? Notice that opposition began when they tried to accomplish something for the Lord. Now, what I love is this Nehemiah didn't get bitter. How many of you know your heart, and you know that when people are critical and they oppose you, that your tendency is to get bitter about it? That's right. yep. mm-hmm. Amen. You know, after a while, after you've gotten your rear end kicked a couple times, <laughs> you know what happens? You can begin to get hardened from it. That's right. Is that not true? And the fact is, is that if you're not careful, you can allow it to scar you as opposed to as a leader of God to drive you deeper into your walk with Christ. Folks, one of the greatest things that you can learn from Nehemiah is that when outside opposition came in, he didn't allow it to make him be negative or critical or angry or bitter towards other people he allowed that criticism and opposition to do what? To drive him in prayer to God, to act on his behalf. Now, I want you to see what happens. Look at the initial opposition. Look at verse one. What prompted their criticism? Look at verse one. But it came to pass when Sanballat heard that we builded the wall, that he was wroth, and he took great indignation and mocked the Jews. Folks, just like I said, at the first notice of, of, uh, of progress, of the fact that they were building and that there was growth, you would think that maybe they would be impressed that this small group of people were able to begin to build. The fact is, they were not impressed. As a matter of fact, uh, they, it got them angry. The heart of a critic is always resistant to change. Change threatens them. If you bring about change, there are going to be people that are resistant and people that don't like progress, people that don't like growth. And folks, the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, are there people that are sometimes critical of change? Yeah, there, it happens. It's normal. It, it, it's a very common thing for it to happen. And notice that they began to get critical towards the things that were happening. Notice that when they were, uh, uh, where they were when the... Uh, the critics began to oppose them. Look at verse two, and it says, and they spake before his brethren and the army of Samaria. Look down at verse three. Now, Tobiah the Ammonite was by him. Notice what's happening. When they found some critical people, what did they do? Come on, think through it, What, what were they doing? Critical people always what? They attract each other. Have you ever noticed that? It's true, like it happens in the world, no matter where you're at. Critical people gravitate to each other. You ever notice that? Like it's the same thing with gossips. People that gossip, they don't like to gossip to people that won't talk to them about it. (laughs) They just want somebody to agree with them. Just give me one person. And when they find that person, boy, they come together. Critics always (laughs) attract each other. They bring each other. Uh, They love to have a, a, a source, somebody that agrees with them. And folks, it's not that all criticism is bad. Folks, isn't there criticism that's necessary? Hey, there's times where it's important for people, the people of God, to step up and criticize. When something's unbiblical, when people aren't doing the, the, the thing that uh, that, that's, that Christ would call us to do as believers, be critical. But folks, what happened here was it wasn't that. There's times to be critical. But folks, it's the role of the leader to determine... This, Lord, is is it an accurate criticism? Hey, when you have people that'll criticize you, the best thing that you could do is begin to ask yourself penetrating questions about your motives, right? (laughs) Begin to say, hey, is it valid? Begin to ask questions like, hey, is is that person, what's their motivation? You don't always know that, we can't judge that. But hey, sometimes people have impure motives behind what they say, right? And see, what happened here was that Nehemiah put it through a filter and he recognized, hey, this person has, uh, has bad motives behind what they're saying. They don't want to see us progress. They don't want to see us, you know, rebuild these walls, so he ignored it. Now, I want you to notice what happens further is that um, critics, they, they love to run together. Uh, all of that happens, but notice what they said. Look at verse 1. Go back to verse 1. But it came to pass that when Sanballat heard and that We builded the wall. He was wroth and took great indignation and mocked the Jews. This word wroth, it's the idea to burn. You ever seen somebody when they get angry? Oh, man, their face turns like bright red. Some people get that vein that like pops out across their forehead. And man, it sounds like y'all know some people like that. All right, but here's the thing is that when that began to happen, these people got angry. Look at what they said down in verse three. Now, Tobiah the Ammonite was by him, and he said, even that which they build, if a fox go up it, he shall even break down their stone wall. What were they saying? Man, y'all's quality of your wall is pathetic. And you know what drives you nuts when you look at this passage? This is another valuable lesson in leadership. Were Sanballat and Tobias, were they involved in helping rebuild the wall? You know who the people that are most critical of most things, the people that aren't involved and aren't doing anything, the people that are on the sidelines, they're always the ones that have the opinion. Have you ever seen people that are critical of their football team? Man, just watch the ladies, watch a football game with your husband. And I'm guilty of the same thing. You know, the armchair quarterbacks. They're the ones that sit on the couch and they, they say, man, if he just would have picked up that ball and thrown it over here. And, and the thing is, it's like not one of us could pick up the football and throw it like that guy. But we all have an opinion about it, right? Okay, I'm talking too close. We, I'm not gonna say anything, my team too, all right? So here's the thing, they would rather stand back and criticize, right? The ones that aren't involved, the ones that aren't doing anything, the ones that are just negative Nancy, the ones that look down about everything. Everything's always terrible. Everything's always going wrong. Hey, folks, people are that way, aren't they? Now notice that verse three, it says, and and this is a critical part because they think they're being critical of the Jewish people that are building the wall. But let me ask you this question. Whose plan was it to rebuild the wall? Whose wall was it? Now, some people might say, it's the Jewish people's. No, it was God's plan to bring Nehemiah to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. So when they were being critical of the rebuilding of the wall, they weren't being critical of the Jewish people or Nehemiah. They were being critical of who? God. It's God's wall. Look at what it says in verse 3. If a fox go up, he shall even break down, notice, their stone wall. You see, they thought they were being critical of them. But folks, that's incorrect. It wasn't their stone wall. It was whose? It was God's wall. Hey, folks, be very careful of the things that you criticize. True or false? Be very careful about the things that you criticize. And, And the fact is, is that we have to be careful of that because we could be criticizing the very thing that God wants done. It's a possibility. You should be open to that. And so look at what else happens. Uh, they were very sarcastic about them. Look at verse two. and man, this is where it gets very interesting. I love this part, not that the fact they're being critical, but I think it brings out a good point. Look at verse two. And he spake before his brethren in the army of S- Samaria and said, "What do these feeble Jews Will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? You know what he means by that? Will they pray up the wall? Will they pray the wall into existence?" Will they make an end in a day? They build it up in just one day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which are burned? What are they saying? They're saying, hey, these Jewish people, they're weak. There's no way they'll get that accomplished. They can't rebuild this wall. Have you seen the number of them? They're feeble, they're weak. They could never get this done. You know, the thing is, is that, isn't that sound just like the world that we live in? The world is concerned with what? What? Ability. The world is concerned with how many people do you have on your side? The world's concerned with what? How smart are you? How much support do they have behind them? The thing that's interesting is that they thought, they looked at these people and said, you guys are doing the impossible task. You'll never get it done. Hey, you know, you look throughout your Bible and the greatest things that God has done and history has been done through weak people that God uses in spite of themselves? Yes. Amen. God's greatest instruments, look throughout the Bible, think through them, were the weakest instruments. Because you know what God loves to do? You remember the principle we talked about? He loves to use clay pots yes. so that the excellency might be of God's power and not of the person. You think of people like if you were Jesus, And you were going to pass on your ministry to somebody. Uh, No offense, I hope we don't have any fishermen, but I probably wouldn't be picking fishermen to do it. Right? I mean, you're not talking about the people with the highest education. They, They didn't have specialized training in the field. They didn't have special initiatives where they were training them. Hey, listen, folks, when he picked out these people, they were weak men that God chose to use in spite of them. It was going to be about his glory. I love this statement. Warren Wearsby made this statement about criticism. Very good words. He said some people who can some people who can stand bravely when they're shot at will collapse when they're laughed at. Let me say that again. Some people who can stand bravely when they're shot at will collapse when they're laughed at. You know, there's some times where we allow criticism to get into our hearts and into our heads and it immobilizes us to do anything for the Lord. Hey, folks, listen up. If there's ever a time where we need to be brave and bold in our faith, it's now. We can't allow critics and people that oppose us to allow them to dictate exactly what it is that the Lord would have us do. Be careful of that. Notice another thing. Look at his reaction, and this is probably the greatest example we could look at. First of all, in his initial reaction, the first thing that he did is he spoke to God about the criticism. Hey, let me say that one more time. The very first thing he did was what, folks? He spoke to God about the criticism. He didn't go towards the one that spoke the criticism. Hey, folks, I don't know about you, but man, that would have been my, like, number one. Like, I'm one of those people I like to go, like, straight at it. And my wife's like, Ryan, you need to calm down tries to back me off the ledge. Don't go right at it. Hey, folks, look at what he does. Look at verses four through six. Verses four and five, sorry. Hear, O our God, for we are despised and turn their reproach upon their own head and give them for a prey in the land of captivity and cover not their iniquity. That's a tough, I mean, he's going at them. And let not their sin be blotted out from before thee. For they have provoked thee to anger before the builders. That's a very unusual prayer. Notice what he's praying. Lord, have you heard him? What's the answer to that? Yeah, he's heard him. Lord, you've heard them. You've seen how they've treated your people. But notice, folks, his source of communication. The very first thing in communication he did, he didn't go to another person. He went before the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He went before his throne room and he began to pray, God, you see what they've done. God, you know what they're trying to do. He went to God in prayer. And his prayer was very authentic. He brought his concerns before God in prayer. It was real. He asked God to work. And listen, folks, one of the greatest things you could do, if you would learn this principle in communication, and and not only that, if I could learn this principle in communication, if before I said something, I would pray about it first, Uh I would save myself a whole lot of problems. Anybody else there? Let's see the wives nudging your husbands. All right, that's good. All right, here's the thing. If we would, before we communicate, would learn to take this concern before God in prayer first, It sure would help. Now, here's the question. We read this prayer and people begin to think, Ryan, are we supposed to pray that way that God would not forgive their sins? What do you think? Is that a New Testament principle? Sometimes you might want to pray that, but listen, New Testament, or Old Testament, the reason why they could do that is that when they had this open opposition against God rebuilding the walls in Jerusalem, they were opposing who? God directly. It was his place, it was his city, it was his wall. Now, specifically in the New Testament, it tells us to do what? Pray for your enemy, oh man. Wouldn't you love, love, love if that didn't say that? But the fact is, is that we're called to pray for our enemies. We pray that they would come to faith in Christ. We don't wanna pray that, you know, that they would uh, be damned to hell. That's, that's basically what Nehemiah's prayer was about, by the way. Lord, would you punish them for what they said? You know, what I love is that Nehemiah, it's a great lesson. The very first response to criticism was to pray. Hey, folks, if you're prone to retaliate, if you're prone to pay people back, if you're prone to cut people down with your words, a very important lesson for us to learn from Nehemiah is don't get so defensive. And listen, if you're in a place of leadership, you're normally a person that's strong-willed already anyways, right? Right? And so when he says, slow down and pray about it, hey, that's a really good uh, thing for us to do. Uh, The thing I I always think about is that I think of David right after he uh, lost the kingdom to his son Absalom. And you remember he was walking down the path and there was a guy that was throwing rocks at him and was, you know, saying all these mean things about David. And you remember one of David's, you know, mighty men of valor said, you want us to go take care of him? Man, if I would have been David, it would have been different. Yes, please do that. All right, but he didn't do that. You remember what he did? Him, what did he say? Let him, let him go. We'll let God be the judge of the situation. He sees everything. And folks, if we would have that kind of mindset when we take criticism to the Lord through prayer, you know what would happen? God deals with people a whole lot better than we do. Right? And you won't feel quite so bad afterwards. Yeah. Right? Right? You want to feel so guilty. It's a great principle. One of the things in the Bible that helps with that is Proverbs 15:1 says this a soft answer turns away wrath, but a grievous word stir up anger. You want to know how to die to kill off the, the fighting and the criticism? Answer them back softly. Be the one that throws the water. I always try to teach my kids and I think it's a valuable principle. It it hasn't worked yet, but I keep trying. And so one of the things is that when they get an argument and they fight or there's something that starts with them, I teach them the principle of the bucket of water and a bucket of gasoline. And man, if you would just throw the water on it at the beginning, man, it would just go so much easier. If you got a problem with them, walk out of the room. Don't throw gas on it. And folks, he's saying that a soft answer turns away wrath. You want to kill the problem out? Be careful in the words that you say. Same passage, Proverbs 15, verses 28 and 29 says this. The heart of a righteous man studieth to answer. What does he mean? He thinks about his words before he answers. But the mouth of the wicked, it pours out evil things. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. What does he mean by that? He means that a righteous person will study to give their answer. They'll actually think about the words that they're gonna say before they say it. A wicked person does what? And Then they just pour out whatever it is they're thinking. Man, I'm just gonna, let me give you a piece of my mind. And they just kind of let everything go out. And you're just kind of like, what happened here? They blew up. Folks, what I love about Nehemiah is the reason why he didn't blow up and lose all of that was because he had already taken the issue directly to God and he left it with him. Can I say that one more time? The reason why he didn't struggle with bitterness and with anger about the situation was he took his request before God about his enemies and he left it with him. And he knew that ultimately what? God will handle it far better than me. Let God handle them. Tell God on them. You know, let, let God know about it. Leave it with him. Let him solve it. And notice the second thing that he did. The first thing is he took it to the Lord in prayer. Secondly, he stayed at the task. Look at verse six. And so built we the wall, and all the wall was joined together unto the half thereof. For the people did what? They had a mind to work. What does that mean? Well, see, critics, they want to demoralize you. They want to discourage you so that you'll do what? Hey, folks, you know what the enemy wants to do is discourage you, get you to fight, get you to be critical so that the work will stop. Hey, when you allow the work of God to stop, the enemy wins. Folks, when we allow critics and criticism to stifle God's work, we are letting the enemy win. You see, good leadership encourages the people to stay focused on the task. And folks, that's a great lesson for churches in America, right? Stay focused on your task. Your enemy is not flesh and blood, right? He wants us to stay focused on the task that he's set in front of us. Get back to work, stay focused on it because the critics, they wanna get you off of the path. They wanna get you off of the mission. And folks, that's happening far too often. Remember the task that God has for us. We're to reach a lost world with the gospel. We don't have time to have fight with each other. Right. Amen. Amen. They stayed at the task. Now notice what happened verses 7 and 8. The opposition intensified. Hey folks, just because you pray about it doesn't mean that he answers it immediately in your timing. Right? God's on his own time clock. We talked about that this morning. He's always on time. He's never too late. He's never too early. He's on his own time schedule. Look at verses seven and eight. But it came to pass that when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabians and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were made up and that the breaches began to be stopped, then they were very wroth and conspired, all of them together to come and fight against Jerusalem And to hinder it, notice, to hinder it, to divert them, to get their attention elsewhere. Listen, you know what they were basically doing? They were gathering more people that were critics and people that wanted to stop them, and they were building an army so that what would happen? The people in Jerusalem would have to be understanding of the fact there's gonna be an army that's gonna come in and oppose you. And by them having to focus their resources on an army that's gonna attack them, It diverted their attention away from the thing that God wanted them to focus on. Okay, so what does he do? Look at the response. Look down in in verse nine. Nevertheless, man, doesn't it seem repetitive? Nevertheless, we made our prayer unto our God. And this time, notice they intensified their reaction. And they set a watch against them day and night because of them. So listen, what did Nehemiah do? Did he change up his method? He went right back to God in prayer. What does that mean? It means this, is that he recognized, that although there was a physical battle that was going on, he also recognized that there was an even greater battle that was going on behind it. It was a spiritual battle that had to be fought with spiritual weapons. Folks, I think there's a whole lot more of that going on than we even recognize. So many things that we identify in our Christian walk, we think are physical battles. We think they're actual enemies that are coming against us physically. And there is some of that. But folks, a lot of it is a spiritual battle that takes us using spiritual weapons. But notice that Nehemiah also on top of it, he prayed But he also did the second thing. He set a watch out in case they did attack. Hey, folks, that is a great balance in the Christian life. Listen, we bring our needs before the Lord in prayer, but we also have to do our part. Hey, folks, listen, you might pray for safety in your house. Lord, keep my family safe. Pray about it, but listen, folks, also lock the door. (laughs) I know that sounds super practical, but that's so true. All right. Listen. It doesn't mean that it eliminates your responsibility. Hey, let God do his part. And let me give you the principle. We'll put the verse up on the screen, but Proverbs twenty-one thirty-one teaches that principle. Look at what it says. The horse is prepared against the day of battle. What does that mean? Get your horse ready. Make sure the soldier's ready. Make sure he's ready for fighting. He's been through the training. But listen, notice what else. But safety is what? It's of the Lord. What does that mean? Hey, you do your part, you get yourself ready for the fight, you get on the horse, you get ready to swing the sword, but recognize that the real victory comes from who? It comes from the Lord. Listen, that is a great, great example of how we should live. Listen, we need to pray as a church. We need to ask God to work and move. And we ask him to do that part. The victory comes from him. But we need to do our part in what he's called us to do. So let's look at some application and we'll be done. Number 1 is this it's impossible to lead anyone without facing opposition folks if you lead anybody there will be opposition face it it's going to happen the the most the only perfect man that ever walked this planet Jesus Christ the god man he walked this planet and guess what he faced the whole time opposition one after another if he faced it we will too another thing is this it's essential to face opposition first with prayer. Folks, we need to use spiritual weapons. Take it to God in prayer. Another thing is that uh, prayer, it's questionable that prayer is all that's necessary if the opposition intensifies. Listen, folks, we need to pray. That's the first thing we do. But there's also secondary things that we have to do as well. A good example, David. You remember when Saul was attacking him? You think he prayed about it? Yes, David did pray about it. But you know what else he did? He ran. When Saul got closer, he prayed again, and he ran faster. It's it's true. And here's the fact, folks, is that, hey, if we're going to try to accomplish anything for the Lord's work, there's going to be criticism and opposition. Face it. It's going to happen. Now, I want to close with these words. Theodore Roosevelt made an incredible statement that I think it just kind of summarizes what we're talking about. And we'll be done. This is what he said. It's not the critic who counts. It's not the one who points out how strong the man stumbled or where the doer of the deeds could have done better. Why the credit belongs to the man who's in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes short again and again. Because there's no effort without error and shortcoming. Who does actually try to do the deed? Who knows the great enthusiasm and the great devotion and spends himself in that worthy cause? Who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly. Far better is it to dare mightily things to win glorious triumphs through check by failure. than to rank with those poor spirits who neither enjoy nor suffer much because they lived in great twilight that knows neither victory nor defeat. What does he mean by that? It's better to go and endeavor to do great things for the Lord than be sidetracked by people that oppose and criticize. Folks, that's a great prayer for us. That Lord, would you help us to do great things, to attempt to do these great things, Lord, for your glory, and not be sidetracked by critics and those that oppose? All right, we have our deacons in the back. I'm going to ask that you guys come forward. Let's pray for this evening's offering. Lord, we come before you this evening and we thank you for your word that encourages us and challenges us to keep going. Lord, help us to be mindful of the fact that we have an enemy that would love to sidetrack us. We have uh, an enemy that would love to get our eyes off of the mission. Lord, don't allow our church to ever be that critical to ever be that divisive. Lord, we have too much to do for your kingdom. Lord, I pray that you would bless this evening's offerings and be with us as we go from here this evening and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. continue praying for brother Craig. We'll try to update you all as we get in.